So as I said, we're wrapping up our study of attitudes and our attempt the first part of this year to, to make an attitude adjustment. And, and there are all kinds of ways we could have ended this, but I want to end it with the attitude of trust and an encouragement to trust only in God. And this lesson comes from Psalm 62. So I want to ask you to turn your Bibles to Psalm 62. And all the main points are coming straight from there. As David teaches us this really important attitude of trust. Trust is faith. So you can think of that interchangeably. Trusting and faith. And David is telling us what faith in God is. And there are six things, so I want to get to it right away so we can make sure we get all six of these ways of looking at faith or trust in God. So the first thing is this. Faith is exclusive. Exclusive. And uh, we start here because there is a key word in the psalm. The key word is only. Some translations are better than others in bringing this out. But in the Hebrew, the word for only is repeated six times in a pretty short chapter. So that tells us that's an important theme, the exclusivity of the word only. The ESV is one of those translations that doesn't bring that key word out really well. So I turn to a more poetic and even more literal translation by Robert Alter. I have his translation on the Psalms that I use quite a bit. And uh, he does a good job because not only does he bring out the word only each time it's used, but he puts it where, it where it is in the Hebrew poetry, which David starts six lines with the word. So I don't know any English translation besides altars that actually begins each line with the word only. That really shows you how important that word is to David in this. And I'll show you how it works, and I've got Alter's translation up on the slides. So four times he uses the word only with reference to God. And that's in, there's a refrain here, it's kind of like the chorus to a song. Uh, it's repeated twice. The first time in verses 1 and 2, the second time in verses 5 and 6. And in this refrain, you have the word only used at the beginning of the sentence, at the beginning of the line of poetry, four times with reference to God. So, verse 1, only in God is my being quiet. From Him is my rescue. Verse 2, only He is my rock and my rescue. I shall not stumble at all. And then if you go down to verse 5 where the refrain is repeated, Only in God be quiet, my being, for from Him is my hope. Then verse 6, Only He is my rock and my rescue, my fortress, I shall not stumble. So do you get what he's saying? He's saying there's only one you can trust, and He is God. As I said, the word only is repeated six times, and this is only four references. So let's look at the other two references. The fifth reference in verse 4 is used antithetically. In other words, 
in an opposite way. And it's to refer to the relentless, malevolent intentions of the speaker's enemies. So he trusts only in God, but they only scheme to go against him. So here's how it reads in Alter's translation. Again, using the word only at the beginning of the line. Only from his high place they scheme to shake him. And this is talking about, David's talking about himself. He's the one they're trying to shake. These are his enemies. They took pleasure in lies with their mouths. They blessed and inwardly cursed. So that's the fifth reference to only. And then the final reference, it's used to talk about the brevity and uncertainty of human existence. That's verse 9, where he says, Only breath humankind, the sons of man, are a lie. You get what he's saying there? We are only a breath. Our lives are short and uncertain. I don't think you can argue against the idea that only is a key word here. That's the point I'm trying to get across. And only speaks of exclusiveness. So the idea here is faith is exclusive in that faith is directed only toward God. Trust is directed only toward Him. He's the only one reliable enough for us to, to believe in and trust in. He won't ever fail us. Now, that comes with another side to it. Faith in God doesn't entertain rivals. You're familiar with the Ten Commandments, and the first two are about this exclusive nature of faith. You shall have no other gods before me, you shall not make any carved images and bow down to them. God says in Exodus 20, He says, I am a jealous God. And people struggle with that sometimes because we know we're not supposed to be jealous. And we see God claiming that He's jealous. And we wonder, is, is there a problem there? And I want to look at some things in Isaiah to kind of explain that. Starting in Isaiah 43, Isaiah talks about the jealousy of God in, I think, the easiest way to understand. Isaiah 43, I want to look at verse... Start with verse 10. Isaiah 43, 10 says, You are my witnesses, declares the Lord, and my servant whom I have chosen, that you may know and believe me and understand that I am He. Now look at this part. Before me no God was formed nor shall there be any after me. That pretty much rules out all gods. There's none before me, none coming after me. I, I am the Lord, and besides me, there is no Savior. See how that resonates with Psalm 62? Only in God do I trust. Then look at the next chapter, 44, verses 6 and 7. Thus says the Lord, the King of Israel, and His Redeemer, the Lord of hosts, I am the first and I am the last. Besides me there is no God. Who is like me? Let Him proclaim it. Let Him declare and set it before me. Since I appointed an ancient people, let them declare what is to come and what will happen. It sounds kind of like Job a little bit, where he's asking Job, where were you when I made the world? Where were you when I did this or that? And then uh, one last reference in Isaiah, Isaiah chapter 48, 
Look at verse 11. Isaiah 48, 11. For my own sake, for my own sake, God says, I do it. For how should my name be profaned? My glory I will not give to another. He doesn't share his glory. This is what it means to say that God is a jealous God. Now, human jealousy is wrong because we do have rivals. We do have equals. None of us can say, I'm a human being, and there's never been a human being before me, and there will never come a human being after me. That's absurd. But some people act like that. You know, they, they're jealous as if they're the only ones that have problems. They're the only ones that should be considered. And that kind of jealousy is wrong. But with God, it is true that there is no, no other gods before him or after him, that no one has his glory, no one can challenge him or be equal to him. You see, so faith is exclusive because it rightly puts its focus on one person, and that is God. Now, Jesus gives us exclusive access to the Father. So he made this statement in John 14, verse 6, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. So trusting in the Lord is not going to allow for many different roads all headed to the same place. Or some of this tolerance that we hear about in today's world or the relativism that says there's, there's all these different ways and they're all going to the same place. Jesus says, no, I am the way, the truth, the life. There's only one way to the Father and that has to come through me. Faith is exclusive. Key word is only. So let's go back to Psalm 62 and let's look at faith some more. Faith or trusting in God is sure. Now let's think about the word only a little bit more. Uh, the word only, the word used in the Hebrew for only, has two senses. And the first one we've been talking about, the restrictive sense. Only as in there is no other. Only one. That's the restrictive sense. But then there's the affirmative sense, in which it can also mean surely or certainly. So that's not, that doesn't really come across in our English, but the Hebrew word is that flexible, where it can mean only or it can mean surely or certainly. And that comes through in this psalm as well. Faith is not only exclusive, but it is sure, it is certain. Look at verses 1 and 2. God alone, for God alone my soul waits in silence. From Him comes my salvation. He only is my rock and my salvation, my fortress. I shall not be greatly shaken. So he says God is his salvation, God is his rock, God is his fortress. And he says, I shall not be greatly shaken. That doesn't mean that he won't at times falter or fail, but he's always going to be able to get back up. He's not going to be shaken so much that he is going to fall and never be able to get up again. Now, as I said, verses 1 and 2 are a part of a refrain that is repeated in verses 5 and 6. So he returns to this assurance in verses 5 and 6. 
And in verses 5 and 6, it's even stronger. Look at it. For God alone, O my soul, wait in silence. For my hope is from Him. He only is my rock and my salvation, my fortress. I shall not be shaken. There are three differences between the first refrain and the second refrain. Uh, In the first one, he speaks to the reader. Uh, Did you notice that? Uh, He's speaking to us. For God alone, David tells us, my soul waits in silence. Who is he speaking to in the second refrain, verse 5? For God alone... Yeah, oh my soul. So this is David. He does this a lot in the Psalms, and I'll come back to this in a moment. But he's, he's speaking to himself. He's trying to drive this truth home to himself in prayer. That's the first difference. The second difference between the two is where in the first refrain, he calls God his salvation, verse 2. In the second refrain, he calls God his hope. Um, so he's, his expectation is less present in the second refrain than in the first. God is my salvation. Hope is you're waiting for salvation. That will certainly come. There's no less certainty. He's just maybe in more trouble in the second refrain than he is in the first. The first one, he's looking back, God has saved me. In the second one, God will save me. But then also the third difference is in the first refrain, as we said a moment ago, he says, I shall not be greatly shaken. But how does he put it in the second one, verse 6? I shall not be shaken. Even more assurance when the help is less present, not less certain, less present. In his hope, he's even more sure that trusting in God will deliver him. So that's a very powerful idea. To see it over in the New Testament, let's turn over to Romans chapter 8 and look at the the end of that chapter. Verse 28 is a familiar passage. We know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are the called according to His purpose. We know this. And then look at him again. At the end of the chapter, verses 38 and 39, Paul says, I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Nothing can get between me and the love of God. That's the kind of assurance that you have with faith. That's the trust that we want to build in our lives. And I've heard people say, we don't need to be so confident about what God will do. We can do everything He asks and hope that He'll follow through. Well, that kind of attitude is treating God as if He's another human being who might break his promises or go back on what he said that he will do. But God doesn't go back on his promises. And so we can have certainty, and it's right, and we should have that certainty. Look at 1 John five thirteen. John says, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life. He wants them to know it, not just to 
feel it or think it or hope for it, that you may know that you have eternal life. So faith is sure. And what we're doing here is we're encouraging you to build an attitude of trusting only in God. And we've seen that faith is exclusive and we've seen that it is sure. Let's go on to the third point. Faith is relentless. We're back in Psalm 62 now. And uh, let's look at verses 3 and 4. We see that um, David's enemies are relentless. He says, How long will all of you attack a man to batter him like a leaning wall, a tottering fence? They only plan to, trust, to thrust him down from his high position. They take pleasure in falsehood. They bless with their mouths, but inwardly they curse. So his enemies are not going to back down. They think of David as some tottering wall, easy to push down. But his faith is just as relentless, even more so, because he continues to trust in God's power to deliver him. So they're not going to tear him down. Going along with this, I found a sermon by Eddie Clower that I thought was really good called A Nevertheless Faith. Think about this. He says, uh, there, there is a nevertheless faith. And he has three points, and they all begin with a P, which I'm not good at this alliteration stuff, so I had to, I had to take his stuff and show it to you, with the three P's of nevertheless. He talks about the nevertheless of poverty, and uh, you see that in Mark chapter 12 with the widow and her two mites. She had only two mites. She defied the essentiality of physical resources and gave to the Lord nevertheless. And then you have the nevertheless of pain. That's Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. He's looking at the agony of the cross. He's praying, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. He goes to the cross despite the pain. And then you have the nevertheless of peace. The last thing you want to give up is peace. None of us enjoys conflict. We don't want our lives to be upset and turned on end, but sometimes we have to choose God or our peace. You know, Jesus said, Do not think that I've come to bring peace but a sword, Matthew 10. So the nevertheless of peace. And uh, Clower says there are two kinds of faith. There is the never-do-anything faith, and the nevertheless faith. Which one do you have? And I think that goes along with this idea that faith is relentless. In the face of anything, it keeps trusting in God. Is that a part of your attitude? Do you have that kind of solid faith that even if you have relentless enemies like David did, you continue to put your trust in God? All right, similar to that is this next one, number four. Faith is unwavering. Unwavering. This is verses 9 and 10. Look in these verses for the cheap substitutes for God that often tempt us to trust in them instead of Him. Uh, there are several examples here. The first one is those of low estate. Verse 9. Those of low estate are but a breath. Uh, the way Robert Alter translated it, only breath, humankind. 
So the sentence in the Hebrew begins with the word only. And here we're looking at the brevity and the uncertainty of life. Those of low estate, they are just, just a breath. And the word breath here can mean a vapor or vanity. It's the same word Solomon uses over and over and over again in the book of Ecclesiastes when he says, vanity of vanities, all is vanity, and vexation of spirit. He's talking about life under the sun without acknowledgement of God, without acknowledgement of divine guidance or help, and that life is vain, it's empty. Those of low estate, David says, don't trust in them, their lives are only a breath. Then he speaks of those of high estate. Maybe some people want to put their faith in um, powerful rulers, people of influence, celebrities, politicians. What does he say of those? If you read the second part of verse 9, those of high estate are a delusion. That means they're a lie. Compared to God, you can't put your faith in them. The last part of verse 9 applies to both these groups. In the balances, they go up. They are together lighter than a breath. So the balances here are the ancient scales. So picture the balancing scales, and you have plates on either side. He's saying you put all the people of low estate, all the people of high estate on one side. In other words, all of humankind on one side of the scales. And on the other side of the scales, you put breath, just air. And what's going to weigh more? The air. He says they go up, humankind goes up in the scales because it weighs less than air. This is poetry, of course. And he's exaggerating to make a point that you can't substitute any person, no matter how important they are to you, they, they're poor, cheap substitutes for God. Don't try to substitute. There's a, one last category here in verse 10, extortion, robbery, and riches. Let's read that. Put no trust in extortion. Set no vain hopes on robbery. If riches increase, set not your heart on them. He's saying don't make an idol out of your possessions. Don't sin in order to amass wealth. Don't steal from people or oppress the poor. Now, he doesn't say it's wrong to be wealthy. Does he, what does he say? If you get riches, does he say give them all away or throw them in the garbage can? That's not what he says. If your riches increase, he says just don't set your heart on them. Know that they are fleeting and they can be gone tomorrow. Don't bank your life on, on money. This brings us over to 1 Timothy chapter 6. And uh, I think it's good for us to go back. He tells us in verse 6 of 1 Timothy 6 that there's great gain in godliness with contentment. We brought nothing into the world and we cannot take anything out of the world. So that's the problem with riches is you can't take them with you. Another problem with it is our money can't handle our love. Love is a heavy obligation. Love is a burden in a lot of ways. When you have someone who loves you, you have someone depending on you. And uh, you don't take that lightly. You have a responsibility to the people who love you. And our money can't handle our love and affection. 
It can't return it. It can't deliver on it. You're putting too much on money if you're expecting it to be your salvation. You're asking it to do that which it cannot do. It, by its very nature, can't give you what you're asking for. And so this leads to what Paul says in 1 Timothy 6, verse, verse 9 and following. Those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is the root of all kinds of evils. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pains. So don't accept any cheap substitutes for God. As we said from Isaiah, he has no rivals. He won't share his glory with another. Uh, does anybody have a comment or anything before I go on to the next one? Mm-hmm. I don't quite get, like, I don't quite understand. Yeah, I don't, I don't remember what I said. No, I'm just kidding. Uh, when, when someone loves us, that puts a burden on the one loved. We are responsible to return that love, to deliver on that love. If your child loves and trusts you, that's your child saying, I expect you to take care of me. I expect you to put food on the table and give me a roof over my head and clothes to wear and affection. And I'm thinking that you're going to fulfill my needs. Um, and when a friend loves you, there's some expectation there with that love that you're going to you're going to return this love and you're going to give me opportunities for conversation. You're going to be somebody that I can spend time with. And um, money can't handle our love. When you try to um, put your faith in money to care for you, well, money doesn't care about anybody. It'll change hands without the without a second thought. And so that's what I meant when I said money can't handle our love. There's a, there's a responsibility that goes with receiving love. When you, uh, when you love someone, you're placing yourself in a situation of vulnerability. You're yeah. Yeah, that's that's great. That's good. That's right. And and later on in First Timothy six, he says that uh, verse seventeen: As for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, nor set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches. That's exactly what we're talking about here but on God, who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. They are to do good, to be rich in good works, and to be generous and ready to share, thus storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. So don't put your hopes in money. Put your hope in God. doesn't mean you are wrong for having money, but as Linda said, it, it puts a responsibility on you. All right, 
let's move on to, uh, we're already at number five. Going back to Psalm 62, faith is consuming. Now that means it consumes the entire personality, your whole being. And this brings us back to the refrain in verses 5 and 6. David says, For God alone, O my soul, wait in silence, for my hope is from Him. He only is my rock and my salvation, my fortress. I shall not be shaken. So David is preaching to himself, and he does this a lot. I won't take the time, because I've done it before, but I won't go to other examples in the Psalms, but you can find them pretty easily where David's looking at himself in the mirror and just preaching to himself. And, uh, you know, sometimes when we hear people talking to themselves, we think uh, maybe there's an issue there that they need to get some help with. But uh, it's very healthy thing spiritually to talk to yourself and to remind yourself of the promises of God because life has a way of making you forget. If you get all wrapped up in your circumstances and your environment, and you haven't been taking the time to pray and to read your Bible, it's very, very easy to get distracted. And one way to refocus is just to remind yourself. That's what David's doing here. He's reminding himself to continue trusting in God and to give his whole being to trusting in the Lord. Everything that is in him. Then in verse 8, after preaching to himself, he preaches to the people. Look at this. Trust in him at all times, O people. Pour out your heart before him. God is a refuge for us. There are two ways in which this theme of an all-consuming trust comes out. Uh, the first one is, he says, trust in him at all times. It means all times, all circumstances, no matter what. Always trust in Him. Any age in life, trust in Him. Whatever stage of, of growth you're in, trust in Him. Whatever's going on around you, whatever season you are in, some like to say, trust in Him. And then the second part, he says, pour out your heart before Him. The heart is the entire inner being in the thinking of the Old Testament. So he's saying, pour out everything that is in you through praise, through prayer, through uh, confession. And he already knows what's in there. So you might as well give it to him. And that's what is meant here by the all-consuming nature of faith. Let it take up your whole personality, all that is in you. And give it to God. And he assures them God is a refuge for us. Okay, let's go on to the last one here. Faith is reasonable. So sometimes people look at faith as this blind leap, right? Well, I got no other option, so I might as well try God. Um, there's absolutely no reason in the world why I should do this, but it seems to be a pretty popular idea, so I'm going to experiment around with this faith thing. And that's how unbelievers look at our faith. And sadly, that's how some so-called believers look at faith. 
take a leap of faith, just take a chance on God. That's not the way David talks about trusting God. He says, trusting in God is reasonable because of God's divine attributes. Look at verses 11 and 12. Once God has spoken, twice I've heard this. That's a common poetic device in Hebrew poetry. Uh, You see it in Amos uh, for three times... There will be judgment, no, for four. Or uh, you're familiar with Proverbs 6. There are six things the Lord hates, seven are an abomination to him. And it's just showing the certainty behind what's behind a list that is about to follow. And so he's saying, once God has spoken, twice I've heard this. So this is certain. And then he lists three attributes of God. Number one, power. That power belongs to God. God is omnipotent. He cannot be overthrown. He is so much stronger than you are, and He's inviting you to rely on His strength instead of your own. Power belongs to God. Number two, that that to you, O Lord, belongs steadfast love. Thankfully, this all-powerful being also shows steadfast love toward His people. This word translated steadfast love in the Hebrew is the word kesed. It's one of the most theologically profound words in the Old Testament. And it has to do with God's undying love for his people, his covenant love. It never gives up. It was very important to David. He, in his Psalms, talks about the steadfast love of the Lord over and over and over again. And we ought to think of that as well. John tells us, 1 John 4, 8, God is love. But how often do you think of God in terms of love? Is that your impression of Him? David's reminding us, he can, unlike money, He can handle your trust because He's all-powerful, because of His steadfast love. And then he lifts the third attribute here. He says to God, you will render to a man according to his work. That's his justice. He's going to be fair. He's going to be righteous. He properly sits on the throne of judgment because he always does what is right. So he is the one that we can put our trust in because he's powerful enough to handle it, he's loving enough to handle it, and he's righteous enough to handle it. That's why faith is reasonable. Faith only in God is reasonable. It makes perfect sense. What is strange and unreasonable is to put your faith in money or to put your faith in another person because we fail each other from time to time. That's not to say we shouldn't put our faith in other people. I mean, we have to. You can't live, you can't even work at a job without putting some trust in another individual. Relationships require trust, but not, your, not this all-consuming trust, you know, where every fiber of your being depends on this person's loyalty to you. That's going to crush you because people are going to fail one another. Even the best of us fail one another. Only God can handle your all-consuming trust in Him. 
So let me review these six things that we learned from Psalm 62 about trusting only in God. Faith is exclusive. It's only in God. He has more of our trust than anyone else. He doesn't share his glory with another. It is sure. That is, it's certain. It will not fail us. It is relentless, just as relentless as our enemies. It is unwavering. It um, doesn't fall for cheap substitutes. It is consuming. That is, it involves your entire personality. And finally, it is reasonable. It makes sense because of the attributes of God, because of who He is. Now, um, any, anybody want to make a comment on Psalm 62 before I wrap up the, uh, the class for the quarter? Yeah, James. Uh-huh. Right. Does, does that steadfast love, is that the same word? That's the same word. Yeah, his steadfast love endures forever. And, um, you know, the way it's repeated in that psalm you're talking about, did you say 136? Yeah. The way it's repeated, you know, if you read that out loud, you, it's going to kind of put you into a trance or something where you're just really driving that truth home to your soul. And so if you're struggling with that, that might be a good one to read. Anything else? I want to end this class by going over to Philippians 2. We've been here a few times over the quarter as we've talked about attitudes. And uh, starting with verse 5, Paul says in the ESV, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. The New American Standard Bible says, let this attitude be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. Cultivate the attitude of Christ. And then he tells us what that attitude is in terms of the cross. Verse 6, who though he was in the form of God, that means though he was in fact, God, he was God. He did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. He didn't desperately cling on to his divine glory. So what did he do? Verse 7, he made himself nothing. More literally, he emptied himself. Taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. The humility is discussed in a downward scale. Okay, he, he humbled himself by becoming a human being. And as a human being, he was a servant. As a servant, he was obedient he was obedient to the point of death, and not only that, but it was the death of humiliation on the cross. And we say, we won't stoop to serve. And we say, God asks too much of me. And we say, I won't forgive that person. I'll never forgive that person for what has been done. I'll never forget. 
and we say, well, I'm too good for that, or I don't want that person anywhere near me, what is the attitude of Christ? But humility, and as we're talking about today, trusting in the Father for all things. So if you forget everything we've talked about since December, just remember that one passage, that we're to have the attitude of Christ, which is an attitude of humility and submission to the Father that will go even to the cross for our love for God. And I think that's a fitting way to end the quarter. Uh, Nathan, what are we doing in here next? Well, next Sunday is Kyle Butt. He'll be in here for a Victory Sunday. Do you know it's... Okay. Am I teaching that? I will be with you in two weeks teaching the parables. He told me, I just forgot. I had my mind on these attitudes. Single-mindedness. All right, thank you all.